Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. This episode will air, or is airing, the week of Memorial Day, so I wanted to do something a little different in having a guest that could relate to Memorial Day more so than others. And so I have with me today Micah Briley, uh, who is a member of a Gold Star family. And Micah, it's good to have you with us Thank here today. You, Thank you for having me. Yeah. So could you just start off for the benefit of our listeners, tell us exactly what it means to be a, a Gold Star family? Well, Brian, I uh, first of all, um, you know, my brother Donovan, Chief Warrant Officer W3, uh, was uh, killed in Somalia in 1993. And you and I had discussed a little bit before this interview of exactly, you know, what that I would hope to accomplish in talking to you about Gold Star families. I always try to remember that, you know, it's not about me or the loss that I have as much as the, the price that my brother paid for the freedom that a lot of people take for granted every day in this country. Well, and and it's unique here as a pastor of a church on Donovan Briley Boulevard. I've I've uh, heard a lot of stories uh, about. We mentioned Coach Harper that that he's a member of our church here and that he yes. uh, was involved with you and your brother. Um, so tell us about growing up. What was it like in, in your home? First of all, we were from a military family. We, uh, my, my dad served in World War II. Uh, my grandfather was in World War One, and my great-grandfather uh, rode with Texas Cavalry in, in the Civil War. So uh, I don't know if it was ever um, really expected as much growing up as that we were all, myself and my three brothers, were always going to end up going into the military as much as it was just a uh, I guess the mentality that we grew up under, needless to say, it was pretty rough. And the neighborhood that we grew up in it was pretty rough being the youngest of three older brothers. Um, we were all athletic. We all spent a lot of time in the outdoors. Um, my mother and father were married bef- before they, uh, before my mother died. I think they'd been married 65 years. So oh, wow. we was really blessed to have a close knit family. Uh, probably a, a lot of the folks that hear this and know my family know they're probably laughing what it was like to grow up in the Briley family. We was mm-hmm. kind of a rough and tumble bunch. We We were uh, known for being um, outgoing, I guess you would say. But we also had a lot of time in a pretty rough neighborhood at the time. North Little Rock was a pretty rough neighborhood where we grew up. And we learned that I learned and we learned at a very young age to pretty much take care of ourselves when, when we needed to as far as any confrontations with other kids and things of that nature. Now, you are the youngest of four yes, sir. brothers, so uh, I have an older sister, but my mother is the only girl of seven brothers, Oh wow! and she's right in the middle, so she has told me some terrorizing stories of things that her brothers uh, did to her, so <laughs> I, I could I can only imagine being the youngest of, of four that there are uh, those kind of things that happened as well. Well, you know, talking about some of the things that Donovan and I got into, we— uh, you know, we would always be out. It seems like trouble would always find us. I don't know if it was the other way around, whether we found it or it found us, but it uh, seems like we always got in a lot of situations, uh, near-death experiences, to say the least. Um, we spent a lot of time at Burns Park out here because we played all played baseball, and um, we got a lot of time out, like I said, out in the – we did a lot of hiking out in the Warsaw Mountains and a lot of outdoor activities. And, you know, one thing that I – growing up, I always knew that, you know, that Donovan and my other brothers always had my back. We always looked out for each other. Uh, we always were taught, and it was ingrained in us deeply, that it was family first, you know. 
Yeah, and I don't. I think that's something that's not taught very much anymore. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, there's a lot of values that I guess we took for granted growing up about family being first. Uh, Patriotism is another that uh, America is a great country, and you know that I think that led each of us to to be able to want to serve and to give back to something to the country that that we had you know, grown up with and the freedom uh, was instilled in us, the appreciation for it. And ultimately, I I know that that Donovan believed in that as well. And he proved it by, you know, laying down his life for the freedom that that we have in this country. Absolutely. So you talked about the lineage there of your father, your grandfather and great grandfather, but it ended up that all four of you boys went into the military. Correct. Yes, we did. Um, My Two oldest brothers are, have since retired from the Army, and uh, Donovan and I started out out here just a short walk from where we're sitting right now at this interview at Camp Robinson uh, in 1981. He and I went out to Fort Jackson. Uh, we were supposed to go to boot camp together and AIT, but he got the Bangkok flu on the airplane, mm-hmm. and he ended up two weeks behind me uh, for probably the first six or seven weeks of boot camp, I didn't have any idea where he was. I just completely lost contact when they had to carry him to the hospital in an ambulance. The flu had hit him the night at the reception station. Uh, So by the time I got back word from my mother in letters that he had written, uh, I finally located, found out he was in a company on the other side of the post there at Fort Jackson. And I still didn't see him till almost uh, time for me to graduate from boot camp. And then uh, eventually he and I ended up a few weeks later down at Fort Rucker, Alabama, where we completed our um, technical training with the Army. uh, And we spent several uh, months down at Fort Rucker uh, going through uh, advanced individual training. So so there was that period of time where you just didn't know where he was at or what was really going on. Right. Uh, I, the last time that I saw him at uh, before they hauled him off, I was marching off to the chow hall that morning, and I heard somebody whistle at me, and they were stuffing him in an ambulance. And that's the <laughs> that's the last time that I had uh, saw him until, uh, like I said, weeks later, and I didn't even know what his status was or anything of that nature. Um, it just so happened that we ended up getting they made the mistake of putting he and I in the same room together at AIT. So we had a lot of time on our hands on the weekends and we were probably just 90 miles from Panama city beach. And we would end up spending a lot of weekends at Panama city going down on the ocean and so forth and sightseeing, you know? Yeah. So you were, you were in the, in the army yes, and, and he was also in the army, but you did ended up doing two different jobs but you worked together for a while if i recall uh, correct we uh, uh as i said we went to uh advanced technical training and he and i were both crew chiefs out here although we were in separate units we were both at the airfield out here at camp robinson uh for several years and we transferred over to an army reserve unit out at little rock adams field and uh, that's where donovan ended up going to flight school and i continued being a crew member on helicopters helicopter mechanic and true crew chief and door gunner and um, he uh, like i said when he graduated from flight school he came back to um, army reserve and he and i ended up flying on the same helicopters together several times and they always uh people that flew with him you know talked about how smooth and how good of a pilot he was and it just so happens that he went on active duty uh and got stationed over in korea and my enlistment was up and I got out for a few years at that time. But when he got back from Korea, he put in his package for the 160th Aviation Regiment, which was where he was at when he was killed on October 3rd, 1993. He was serving that unit in Mogadishu, Somalia. All right. What, what was it like being in an airplane with your younger brother? Well, he was, uh, for him, that's a good question. He was... Uh, he was two years older than me, so he was my older brother. But that's uh, right. I'm sorry. That's okay. Sorry. <laughs> that, I knew what you meant, but I don't know. I guess it was a sense of pride that he and I both, uh, you know, you had that sense of pride, and you also, you know, you had a job to do, and he had a job to do. And crew crew chiefs and pilots work very closely on on aircraft together. They rely on us, and of course, we rely on them uh, to be able to ma- fly the aircraft. They rely on us to be able to maintain it. So we had a close relationship as far as that went. It just so happens my son and my nephew 
are now out here at Camp Robinson, and they're working on helicopters also, and they're both crew chiefs. Wow. That's so they're, the they're just carrying it on. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> the tradition goes on, yeah. so we're, we're pretty proud of them. You know, some some people that are raised in, in military homes begin to resent the military and don't want to have anything to do with it, but it sounds like all of you were taught in a way to respect and and to to be patriotic and to be thankful for those that have paved the way. Well, it's a lot of opportunity also for us. You know, I, I didn't one time I graduated from North Little Rock. I, I was tired of school myself, and I really considered uh, going to Arkansas Tech University to uh, uh, on a baseball walk-on type scholarship. Mm-hmm. I'd been talking to them and was weighing my options, and there was just uh, just so happened that we had a cousin that was a Vietnam veteran. He was a pilot uh, on helicopters in Vietnam, and we'd talked to him over family gatherings and over the years, and I think that that, that was uh, Donovan and I, we got interested after talking to him and some of the the things that he had done, you know, during Vietnam and a lot of the stories that he told. I went to Arkansas Tech my freshman year, uh, but I had to get out. I couldn't stand being called a wonder boy. <laughs> you know, you know, it's funny you say that. My two oldest brothers graduated from Arkansas Tech, and uh, I remember many times going up there that you was talking about the, tell us a little bit about the family. Anybody that hears that and knew them probably could tell you a lot of stories themselves yeah. from being up at Arkansas Tech together. So. Yeah, you have mentioned that Donovan was was killed in the line of duty. Uh, to your knowledge, because I'm sure there's a lot that you probably don't know, but could you kind of just walk us through what exactly took place? Well, um, it was October 3rd, 1993. Um, George H. Bush had put in a peacekeeping force in Mogadishu, Somalia, because um, if people that remember are old enough to remember now, since it's been 28 uh, 28 years will be this fall. There was a lot of pictures on the evening news every night of uh, a famine that was going on in Somalia. And George H. Bush at the time put in a peacekeeping, United Nations peacekeeping force, <clears throat> excuse me, he put in a force to provide aid and comfort, food for to try to stop the famine, which had, was pretty much being successful. But at that time, at the time that his uh, administration was over, President Clinton took over, and uh, they started running into a problem where the warlords were confiscating the food from the refugees, and they were intercepting United Nations food shipments. Uh, and it got so bad that uh, they actually ambushed the AD was the warlord of that particular tribe that was the strong tribe that was in Mogadishu at that time. It got to the point where they ambushed a United Nations uh, convoy and killed several. It was Pakistanis that they were killed in that ambush, several. And at that time, they decided to deploy uh, a unit that my brother was involved with, the 160th. Uh, and it was called um, Task Force Ranger. And their mission was to hunt down Adid and his warlords and bring them to the table and get them to stop interdicting on the United Nations food shipments. That went on for several weeks. They were uh, doing several raids on his warlords and his top lieutenants. Um, the 160th, their primary mission, uh, most of their flights and their missions, they prefer to take them and do them at night because of America's advancements in night vision technology. And unbeknownst to a lot of their intel at the time, the warlords that, that were interdicting on the food and that had ambushed the United Nations convoy, they were getting rearmed uh, in what they called the market area, which was the heart of Mogadishu. Uh, most, they'd already done several raids down in that area, but they always did them at night where they had the advantage of having night vision over the Somali warlords. That particular day on Sunday, October 3rd, around 3 p.m., they got a intel report saying that A.D.'s warlords, his top lieutenants, were going to be meeting down in the market area, which uh, the 160th and the Rangers that were involved in working with them referred to that as um, Badlands or an Indian country. That's what they called it because it was such a bad area, and it was held a strong point that was held by the warlords. So they got this intel. The lieutenants were going to be meeting. Um, 
And they they said they were going to be meeting in that afternoon. I think it was at around right around 3 p.m. local time there. Um, so that although a lot of them knew that was going to make their danger a lot greater, they decided they, it was going to be worth the risk, and they were going to go in and, and capture these top lieutenants so they could get intel on where A.D., the warlord chief, was at. So they uh, deployed uh, – Task Force Ranger deployed with a, a lot, several of the Rangers uh, quick reaction teams and several Delta Force operators. They deployed and uh, dropped several of the Rangers in a blocking position around the perimeter of the hotel that they were going to be meeting. AD's warlords were supposed to be meeting. They also dropped Delta Force in to go from the roof of the buildings down to capture, which they did. They did capture them at that time. Uh, as the Rangers had deployed, one of the Rangers basically fell at the, at, off of the aircraft when he was supposed to be fast roping in. They were under heavy rocket propelled grenade attack, several. And the, the thing that they did not know is that the Somalians had been rearming through a NATO checkpoint that the, the, the Italians, from what uh, a lot of the people on the ground told me, were allowing them, were being bribed and allowing them to rearm into that uh, market area. So they had a lot more ammunition, a lot more of the, the rocket propelled grenades than anybody knew they had. Donovan had one of the Ranger teams on on board his aircraft. He dropped off in the blocking force. They fast roped in. Um, they had recovered the Ranger that had fallen out of the one of the aircrafts that had fallen over off of the rope, the fast rope they call them. And then they set up an orbiting position, orbiting around the target area, the target building, while the Delta Force brought the captured lieutenants down to the air, uh, down to the street and started loading them up on a convoy that the Rangers had coming in to take out the prisoners. While Donovan was in orbit, uh, providing cover, uh, they had there were several aircraft. I don't remember exactly how many there was. Uh, six or eight of the Blackhawk helicopters and several Little Bird OH-6s that were doing overhead coverage. While Donovan was orbiting around the target area, we found out later just from talking to a lot of the intel that we ended was able to gather uh, myself and my brothers that were, were deeply, of course, they were in the Army, and I, we did a lot of research afterwards. But they had fired over 110 rocket-propelled grenades at my brother's aircraft alone during that time. And they were in low orbit, which they had to be low to be able to cover the, the Rangers on the ground because they had a sniper on board his helicopter. At one of the several that they launched out of the 110, uh, I talked to the crew chief later after all of this had transpired, and it was actually at my brother's memorial service and his funeral. I talked to the crew chief that he saw the the one of the Somali rebels step out of a doorway, and he saw him launch that uh, grenade. He was trying to get his machine gun on him, and by the time he got it, spotted him and was about to shoot that uh, war that. That tribesman or one of those uh, rebels had fired a grenade, hit my brother's tail rotor on his helicopter. Donovan was flying in the co-pilot position on the right-hand side of the helicopter. Uh, Chief Warrant Officer Cliff Wilcox was flying as the the, instru- the lead pilot on the left side. Um, at that time, if you've ever seen the documentary, I've seen the, the actual footage. Um, they went in, they lost their tail rotor. A helicopter tends to do an anti-torque effects and start spinning out of control. The only way to get that under control is to uh, gain forward airspeed. And to do that, you have to lose altitude. So um, in short, what it amounted to was uh, Donovan's helicopter. They crash landed onto a roof, one of those little Somali uh, shanty uh, shacks that you see on any of the TVs or any of the, a lot of third world countries happen. They ha- everybody was on board that was on board was okay at that point. Within a second or so, though, during the impact, the wall collapsed and the helicopter rolled over onto its side in the alley, killing uh, Donovan and. Uh, cliff uh at instantaneous i know that donovan was on the upside of the when it rolled over on its side he was on the upside of the on the right side as it rolled over on its side but the overhead console apparently hit him right across the top of his vertebrae and killed him instantly so he never even knew that he was going on to be with the lord at that particular second Cliff, however, was uh, he was killed instantly as well. I know this from talking to the crew chiefs and the guys that were on board that survived it. He was trapped in the wreckage, however. 
at that time, the, the word went out that the, the a Black Hawk had went down, and you see that in the movie that you've heard of Black Hawk, the Black Hawk Down mm-hmm. television show. That's when they were saying the Black Hawk Down, Black Hawk Down. Uh, they set up a perimeter around Donovan's aircraft and started uh, getting the survivors out, the, the injured crew chief and the, the uh, Army personnel that were still on board. And they set up a protective perimeter around that building. This was probably a block away from where the rangers had captured the warlord lieutenants so they had were kind of already stretched out so they had to set up a pretty wide perimeter around his crash site at that time they got it secured and they've got um i know they got donovan out right away from the wreck and the, the other injured individuals um and like i said when they set up that perimeter it wasn't i think it was just within about a five minute period they got word that a second black hawk was hit by rpg that was michael durant's air and then that you ended up seeing that on the news um, and found out later that he was held hostage for over a week. Mm. Um, and that was his crew, crew members that you saw pictures of them being drugged through the streets. That was two other Delta Force operators were there with him. And it talks about they ended up winning the Medal of Honor. They fought to the death, defended Michael Durant because he was injured. And that pretty much was um, what went down as far as when Donovan died for his country. Um, you know, Brian, I, I, I always tell people that when I talk about, you know, the the event of Donovan getting killed on duty, you know, if all of those guys that were killed, there was 18 Americans killed in that firefight that ensued after they set up the perimeter. They were basically there on the ground uh, after the other aircraft, Michael Durant, being a uh, shot down they were they were stretched to then they had no way to get the other uh rangers out um and by then all of the rebels had it just uh enclosed around them and that's what you know you had a um probably a 14 or 15 hour firefight where they just fought the whole basically the whole city just came in on them there was over oh they estimate probably 1500 casualties on the somalia inside as they were fighting the rangers that set up and that the whole night just to keep from being overrun the 086 little birds were just coming in suppressive fire on the enemy constantly all night to keep the rangers from being overrun you know also the reason they stayed is because they were not going to leave cliff's body in the wreckage and they were not their motto rangers never leave a, leave a man behind um, so they stayed there to protect the, that aircraft and protect his body because they weren't going to leave him in the in the city, you know. So if I, I understand, their mission there with Donovan was to provide support to the Rangers who were on the ground? Correct. That was their primary mission was to be able to do, uh, you know, be, to be able to insert the Rangers uh, as or the Delta Force operators into their whole mission was to try to capture AD. That's what, what their mission was, because he was the one that was interdicting the food shipments. And uh, President Clinton had made it a mandate that uh, they needed to capture him in order for peace to have a chance, basically, and for the United Nations shipments to continue under security rather than being uh, having to worry about getting ambushed and overrun as far as the convoys and things of that nature. So me not having a lot of knowledge about this, this happened in 90, what did you say? October 3rd, 1993. Okay. That's when it happened. Um, what I was going to say, the, you know, with Donovan knowing him and knowing most of those guys, I knew all of them personally just from meeting them that were in Donovan's unit. I knew them. I didn't know many of, any of the Rangers till after uh, that battle. I got to know several of them talking to them at different memorial services that we went to. Any of those guys, the 18 Americans that got killed, I know Donovan. I can I know I can speak for him just growing up with him and knowing him as good as anybody did, I suppose. But I know that if they would have told him, hey, you're not coming back from this mission, he would have still went on that mission, Brian, because mm-hmm. that was just the type of guy he was. He was never quit, never give up. That was the the motto, really, of the 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 unit that they were. That's why he sought out the one six, just because they were the they're the cream of the crop when it comes to army aviation. They're the most elite helicopter unit there is probably on planet Earth. You know. So with with the situations going on, Adid, was he some big figure before all of this happened, or did he just kind of decide? 
they were going to. He was a big figure for Mogadishu. It was, uh, you know, and it's still, it really hasn't changed that much in 28 years. I mean, they're still fighting, still killing each other. And he was just happened to be the warlord with the most guns, you know. Hmm. Uh, they, of course, they're involved in drug trafficking and and all the, all a lot of the other illicit exploits that they do but yeah he happened to be probably the most powerful warlord at that time and like i said he was rearming uh, a lot more than the intelligence reports were telling the rangers and my brother's unit that they weren't aware that they were rearming as much as they had been you know as a matter of fact it we later found out that that was U.S. Army's and the U.S. military's first actual contact with al-Qaeda. It was al-Qaeda that was rearming ADs. He had linked up with uh, with the uh, al-Qaeda, and they were had done a lot of training with those rebels that taught them to set those grenades on their rocket RPGs. Uh, they had taught them how to have, uh, cause those grenades to airburst so they were more effective in taking down helicopters because they had been studying, like I said, for several different missions before that. They'd been studying the the tactics that the 160th was using at that time. So, so from the time that the helicopter went down and then knowing that the second Black Hawk went down, how long did it take for for the Rangers to regain control to where they could I think it was around 16 hours I'm not don't I'm not exactly sure of the exact I mean, I mean I could look it up but as far as the total amount of time they were on the ground there I know they were running low one of the rangers that had been wounded died because he wasn't able to get resupplied with uh with plasma uh they were getting low on ammunition and everything else they had been there at least 13 hours I know it may have been right around that I may be off an hour or two on it but they were there for a long time a long amount of time but and what they were waiting for was a rapid reaction force that had, was trying to get to them to relieve them but in the meantime uh, they had been setting up roadblocks all over Mogadishu and they were blocking that relief force from coming in well those guys ended up getting turned around and lost in all the back roads and they got shot up so bad they had to go back and uh, refit and rearm which took more time so this was an all-night event it was going on you know non-stop and those guys you know like I said they were outnumbered well you can you know there was probably I think a total of 150 counting the ranger and the the, the whole task force and they was fighting a city of you know several thousand mm-hmm. um, warlords and the rebels that were there so so it also <clears throat> kind of sounds like maybe the rebels knew this was going to take place I know just from as times passed I've found more and more bits and pieces of uh the the intelligence of what went uh, you know that was something that just I was just driven myself to find out you know uh, a lot of the details of what went on you know of course I wanted to know exactly where and and when and how my, you know the battle went down and where what Donovan was probably experiencing at that moment before he departed this earth it was um, a lot of information that we had to find out that we wasn't sure of. And, you know, I, I know that they had been rearming. I know that Al-Qaeda was involved with them. And it just so happens, just um, a point to be made, you know, that the 160th was the same unit 10 years later that would take the SEALs end it to uh kill Osama bin Laden over in Pakistan. So it took them 10 years to finally to to get a payback, so to speak, of what had happened and transpired in Mogadish that cost so many of them their lives, you know. Right. So they were able to to bring Donovan and and Mike back into a, a secure area. Uh, yes, that morning as the sun started to come up, they finally got relieved. They got a relief force in there. That convoy was able to get in there and they were able to, actually they had to wait. They was waiting on United Nations armored personnel carriers. They finally got to, uh, a lot, enough of those together where they were able to make a strong enough convoy with the convoy in 
to have a, a thicker skin type vehicle because they were getting shot up so bad with the first convoy that tr- tried to come in and relieve them. They finally got a task force together that was strong enough to be able to push their way in by the next morning. And they was uh, able to get Cliff's body out of the helicopter at that time and were able to pull out all the other Rangers. And you hear, um, if, you, if you do any research, you'll hear them talk about the Mogadishu Mile. And that was a lot of the Rangers that they were so shot up and a lot of them, they just had to stuff into those armored personnel carriers and were taking them out. And it just so happens as they were bringing up the rear, some of them ended up having to, to run a mile or two behind the, out in the open. At the end of that battle, after fighting all night, they had to run behind the convoy to make it back to the stadium where they were rallying all the, the, the wounded and regroup, you know, that morning. So now that, now that they are back in a, in a secure location, mm-hmm. what happens next? Well, um, one of the things that happened was um, they were planning on going back at that time. Michael Durant, as I'd mentioned, uh, was being held hostage, hostage by AD. He was the only survivor out of his helicopter that went down and crashed a probably three or four miles over from where Donovan's helicopter had crashed. Uh, he was the only survivor that wasn't, they got overrun at that position. The two Delta Force operators that gave their lives were defending uh, Michael Durant's aircraft. And he, he had a broke, real bad broke leg. And um, he was ended up <clears throat> a week later, got released. What happened um, at the end result of all this within Three days of that battle going on, President Bill Clinton had uh, two Army pilots fly a deed over to Peace Talks. And <clears throat> that's one of the things that really bothered me and a lot of uh, a lot of the people that served there. I know a lot of the Rangers and 160s felt the same way, that really all they wanted to do was go in and finish their mission. But they, uh, after that, Losing two helicopters and 18 Americans, the the administration, uh, Bill Clinton's administration, just didn't have the stomach for it. Mm-hmm. And they uh, ended up bringing AD to uh, peace talks over and trying to solve the situation and being able to get the food supplies back in, you know. Now, now looking <clears throat> back, uh, knowing that that took place, how did that make you feel personally about what had happened? Well, um, Brian, we talked a little bit before this interview you know, it's been it's been 28 years now, and you know, it's something that a family member, you know, a gold star family member means that you're um, next of kin to a, a individual that died in service to their country in the military. The way that you know, when I got word that Donovan had been killed, I was uh, stationed in the Navy at the time uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. We, matter of fact, we'd just been to church that morning. And uh, we was about to eat lunch when I got the call from Donovan's uh, wife that he had been killed. At that moment, um, you know, not that I was surprised as much. We knew how dangerous that mission was or his missions were. He'd had several close calls. He had been in um in Panama, I know he'd been in Panama when we had that battle down there to to overthrow that government. Uh, he'd been in several different close calls. Just being in that unit is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Uh, they mostly that's all they do is dangerous missions. So it really wasn't as much as a surprise. It's just just something you really there's no way to prepare yourself for it. It was like getting hit with a ton of bricks just all at once. You know, um, what the way that. I guess I dealt with the grief. You know, they say there's seven stages of grief. I don't I don't recall going through the seven stages of grief. Um, being a soldier and you know, as I said, we were all raised to be warriors. What really transpired with me was a lot of anger. You know, I just, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I felt a lot of uh, bloodlust is what I wanted. The, the Somalians that had been responsible all the way up to, you know, I resented uh, just really angry at the way the Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, at that time, he they'd requested heavy gunships and heavy armor to be able to do their mission. While they, he turned it down to the Task Force Ranger, he turned it down because he thought it was too provocative at the time. And ultimately, you know, the way that it was handled by Bill Clinton's administration, you know, it just really lo- left a lot of resentment in me towards the government as a, as a whole, towards the, the government that was 
in power at that time in Washington, D.C., the way that they just left those guys hanging down there. Well, they sent them in to do a mission and they had not gave them the support they needed to be do it in a safe manner and an effective as they could have been. So I had a lot of anger to work through over the years. It really, you know, I, I turned to it got to the point where, you know, I have had a wife and three small children at the time, and my career in the military was coming due to an end, my, myself in the Navy due to an injury. So, I you know, my enlistment was almost up, and I was having to make a lot of choices in my career, what I was going to do with the future. And, and, you know, I had this pent-up rage where I really couldn't, there was really no one to express it to. You know, I talked to a lot of the guys that were there on the ground, and, you know, and they they have dealt with a lot of the same issues. And since then, a lot of the veterans have dealt with the issues that I've had to deal with, not just as losing a, a blood brother, but as other brothers in arms, you know, that we serve with. And I've had to just really keep my guard up, you know, and I, I can, I want to bring my focus back to what, where the Lord took me with, with that, because I'll be, you know, without, uh, Jesus Christ being in my life, Brian, and my relationship with him, you know, it would have utterly destroyed me. There's no way to carry something that you see American troops that you know being drugged through the streets by some little third world country and just the defilement and, you know, every everything, everything that that picture can um, instill in you or, or cause to come up to the surface. Um, the anger and the rage, you know, I, I started really for several years there, just really kind of kept it pent up. And I, it started to manifest itself with really, I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but it started self-medicating, started drinking real heavy. And uh, I kept going back. Fortunately, I, I kept my relationship with the Lord and still in a lot of prayer and time and re- seeking him and seeking answers because it just wasn't getting any better with that rage. And, you know, there was just a, a bitterness. Anytime that you allow, and I've learned this over the years, anytime that you allow uh, an event or anything in your life, whether it be that or something else, if you give uh, the enemy an opportunity to cause bitterness or for you to take hold of that bitterness and have a, a, a revenge or someone you want to get even with, for example, or someone that you resent to the point where you become, you let bitterness take a root in your life. If you don't turn that over the Lord and you learn how to forgive that person, it's just going to, you're going to be the one that pays the price. You know, it took me a long time to, to learn that. Yeah, guilt, guilt, and uh, anger, and all of that kind of stuff only affects us. And that's something else that you know. That's something else that I really experienced a lot of Donovan and I being so close, and us flying together, uh, us in serving together. Uh, I felt a lot of survivor's guilt. It just, mm-hmm. it just ate me up that I wasn't able to be there with him or for him. And you know, I just, I, I remember going through my mind if I'd have been there, we, you know, we could have done something different. And, you know, really it comes down to a reflection on, you know, Brian, we're, we're really all invincible until our time's up on this earth. And, you know, God numbered our days here, you know, in eternity past. He knew how long we were going to be here. And that's why it's so important not to let bitterness to take a hold in your life, because every day we have is precious. Life is precious. Although... You know, we look at uh, a third world country like Mogadishu, life is not precious. I've been to several third world countries, and it's something that, you know, life is cheap there to them. They take day by day. They live from one day to the next, a lot of times not even knowing if they're going to be be there. Just like I guess we could all say that, though, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. If we let a bitterness or, or a resentment or not forgiving a wrong done to us, it's just going to end up eating us up inside. And, you know, I had to put that aside and get on with my life. And it wasn't a short journey, believe me. It took years and years for me to be able to deal with that. And, you know, I've got to give credit to the the Lord that I was able to do that, you know. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned that the way you found out about his death was by his wife mm-hmm. calling you. Did he have any children? Yes, he had a he had a, had a daughter. She was five years old at the time. Oh, so wow. yeah, so he was a uh, you know that's again that's another another source of pain. Just you know leaving a widow and a young daughter behind. That you know we've we've tried to stay close to to each other and 
you know, over the years. And she's now married and has two children of her own. But just that loss also, again, could be turned resentment, the fact that, you know, that he, she was left without a dad to, to grow up with, you know. Yeah. Now, how old was he when he was killed? Five years old. She was okay, five. She was, how old was Donovan when he, he was? He was 33. 33. Do you know how long of time was between his death and when his wife was notified? Does that happen fairly quickly? Or? Yes. Uh, well, I, I know that it normally it does, you know, in a, in a perfect world it does. I, I'm sure she got word within 12, less than 12 hours, I'm sure they're real. Mm-hmm. I know that 160th has been great. They, they were worked. They've still, you know, over the years have done a great job in supporting her, supporting his daughter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, matter of fact, that they have been have a scholarship fund that they've set up for fallen night stalkers. That's the, the unit's motto. Uh, their um, name is night stalkers. So. Mm-hmm. They have a, a scholarship fund where they take care of the, the fallen night stalkers, children and widows. And it's just like you cannot you couldn't ask for more in the support that they've given over these years. You know, yeah. it's above and beyond what you would expect from anybody. So what was your, you know, whenever I've been told that somebody has died that I'm close to, it's it's almost as if all time stops. Mm hmm. What was that first kind of 24 hours for you? What was the moves that you made, the things that you did? I had a lot of contacts that I was just burning up the phones trying to figure out what happened. You know, first of all, to confirm for sure that he had been killed because the information was coming in, was sketchy. Uh, we were getting bits and pieces of information, informa- some uh, incorrect information. We was trying to figure out, you know, first of all, I wanted to know. You know, we, at the same time, we're seeing CNN. They're dragging American soldiers through the streets of Mogadishu, and you're seeing little tribesmen surfing on their bodies and being stripped naked and, and dragging their corpses through the street. Again, my immediate reaction to that was just total rage, just total rage seeing that and just coming to grips with the loss. You know, I just – it was just – like I said, one side of me was thinking that the, it was just unbelievable, and the other was just kind of uh, – I'd been trained, you know, in the military to think while in the middle of crisis. So, I mean, it was, I was having clear thought and, and uh, trying to fun. Main thing I was trying to figure out was what was going on. It, we ended up, I ended up flying back up to Fort Campbell where the 160th is uh, their primary unit was at, uh, was actually was visiting with uh, Michael Durant's family the day that he was released from being with a hostage. So, mm-hmm. We was uh, staying in contact with a lot of the the support uh, that was there at Fort Campbell through the 160th, uh, talking to the chaplain, talking to a lot of the people letting us know the information. At one point, I even talked to a SEAL Team 6, which is they're the ones that ended up going in and taking out Osama bin Laden. But I was talking to one of the senior enlisted members there that trying to find out as much details as as I could about the battle and what happened. And. So, I mean, there was a lot of different emotions going through with, with me. I was trying to to be able to find out as much information to be able to try to minister to um, my parents. They were dealing with the loss of their son, you know, and all of our family members, Donovan's widow and his daughter. We were there with her, and, you know, it was just a no person should have to to be able to deal with that kind of loss you know i just my heart broke for my mother and my father losing their son and just overall the family just a deep wound that really there's no um human experience that can prepare you for something like that you know and and really all over greed of somebody wanting to control if somebody had food or not right right you know and that's the things that i you know i've just gone over the years, you know, I've just looked at just the the harsh reality of the evil in the world, you know. The the fact of the matter is, Brian, you know, that person uh that squeezed the trigger that caused my brother to be killed, you know, Jesus died for him just as much as he died for me on the cross. That's really hard mm-hmm. uh to come to a point of forgiveness where you have to you have to turn it over to the Lord. You can't carry a burden like that, you know? Yeah, and that's it's very difficult, especially when we look at grace being unconditional. That's right. Um, and, 
you know, God's grace is what has carried me um, and still does every day. You know, um, you know, I I don't deserve to be here any more than Donovan did. You know, every day that we take, I've tried to make my life be every day be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Every day, there's nothing that we do on this planet that's going to be worthwhile in eternity in the in the future, except for what we do for Christ's sake. You know, that's the reality of it. Mm. So, in in the days to come after notified, um, presumably they brought his body back, and you were able to have a funeral at some point in time. Yes, we. Uh, I uh, think it was probably just within a, you know, within a short time. Uh, you know, we were kind of at that time. You know, I was uh, for the first few weeks of that whole event. Um, you know, I was kind of running on autopilot. You know, I was trying to to be everywhere for for everybody that I could be that needed my support. I still had three young children, two young children at the time. My youngest son wasn't born yet, but I still had a wife and two children to take care of. And, you know, I was still, I was on, I took leave from the Navy to came back here for funeral services. And actually we had it right out here in North Little Rock where Donovan's buried. And they had the, um, you know, the missing pilot formation that flew over and that's when a lot of it just really started hitting me. You know, those helicopters flew over and, you know, and, I did, at the time I really didn't realize it, but you know I I just the resentment at that time really a resentment towards it wasn't hit Donovan's unit, but just the overall structure of the way things had been allowed to unfold. Um, it really started to the again that's when I started struggling with the bitterness that I was didn't know it at the time, but I was not willing to forgive those that I held you know accountable for those or be held accountable. Yeah. for those events that transpired. We uh, had the funeral out here in North Little Rock. Uh, I went to several different uh, memorial services at Fort Campbell, um, and uh, the, a lot of the pilots uh, that had been Cliff and Donovan and, and the other pilots, uh, just uh, several weeks of going to memorial services and um, talked to a lot of the rangers there. That a lot of those guys, you know, they were still wounded and showing up. Uh, talked to a lot of the crew members that were there. I talked to most all the 160th crew members that were there, including Donovan's crew chief. He had 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 a finger shot off in the battle, and he was telling. I uh, got a lot of the details of what happened at that last moment that Donovan, you know, transpired. And I know what he was doing. You know, he was just going through being a professional that he was. He was just calmly. Um, Cliff had the controls at that time, and he was just calmly going through the emergency procedures, you know, that he'd been trained to do, you know, being the quiet professional that he was. That's what he was doing until his last moment, doing his job to make sure he could save as many lives on board that helicopter as possible, you know. Yeah. Well, we can be thankful that uh, he wasn't captured and tortured mm -hmm. as others were. Well, that's the truth and has been since, since the war on terror. You know, I, I have... Uh, several family members and uh, uh, in-laws and things of that nature whose sons have been uh, over in Afghanistan and Iraq and a lot of the people that have been killed. I've known several that have been killed since then in, in battles. And just it's a terrible price that we have to pay. Uh, you know, the freedom, you know, it's uh, people take that a lot of times. I know as a canned phrase, you know, that you say freedom's never free. But the fact of the matter is that it's cost a lot of men and women over the years. Uh, I think it's been over, uh, I might be wrong on my figures, but I think it's been over 6 million people that have died for freedom for this country since we have been founded. And that's a terrible price to pay, you know, mm. for, for freedom. But, you know, if you think about it, though, Brian, uh, if we look at freedom that that we have, and we have freedom over death, we Jesus conquered death on the cross when he rose from the grave three days later. And the freedom that he gave us is so much greater than the freedom that people that have been have died, no greater love does a man have than they willingly lay, lay down his life for a friend. And you know that that freedom that Donovan died for, he he that's him to the T laid down his life for his friends and for his country. And, you know, the freedom that we have through Christ uh, allowed me to be able to heal, to be able to tell people that are going through grief. Since that time, I've lost both my parents, you know, 
I was just going through the loss of when I when Donovan got killed there in Somalia. I just lost my grandfather. I was out in the North Sea, and it took me three days before I could even get to a phone to even talk to my family. And when I when I did finally reach my mother and grandmother, uh, they had already buried my grandfather, you know, and he was like. My grandparents were very close to myself and my brothers. They were like a, a, another set of parents. You know, we had a very close-knit family. And I lost several. I lost a, a uncle that I was real close to. And I was just now starting to come with a lot of the family members that I'd held near and dear to me. To me. I started was dealing with that. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I had to deal with my brother that, that was closest to me. We, you know, had to deal with his loss. And it was just... Uh, above and beyond what I was capable of effectively dealing with, I was able to function, you know, as as a father and and, keep, and do still maintain my job in the military. And um, over the years, I, when we came back to Arkansas, about four years after that, you know, I've got into business, went into business for myself, and I've raised, uh, you know, three children and. And uh, my wife and I are still married, you know, over 26 years now. And I've been able to keep it together. And the only way that I've been able to do that is relying on God's grace, you know. I couldn't have done it by myself. You know, I know where I would be if it wasn't for God's grace. I would would not be here today, you know. Right. Now, you mentioned um, survivor's guilt. And we see that a lot in many different, different cases. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we really have to remember that there was nothing that we could do to change it because we weren't there. And if we if we allow that that guilt and that bitterness and that anger and resentment to just keep building, we're going to lash out. And typically we lash out at the people we know you're, we're safe to lash out, whether it mm-hmm. be a, a wife or or uh, you know, a, a child or whoever it is, and and that just doesn't produce much. Uh, it, it is, you know, and it's a sense of helplessness to survival. It, really, what that comes down to is survivor guilt. It's a sense of helplessness, and there there is no solution for it. You know, the only solution is relying on Christ's grace. And you're right; it does. <clears throat> it manifests itself with those that are closest to us that we love. And, you know, my wife took the brunt of a lot of, of the behavior and the traits that I was developing through it and through the rage. The rage is what I just had so much to deal with. And I had no other than just exercise and, you know, activities, that healthy activities. It wasn't enough to do to get rid of that rage and the resentment that I had, you know. And she bore a lot, a lot of the brunt as far as the it affected our relationship and our closeness, you know over the years and we've God's been able to heal that in us but um, and I've been able to help her through a lot of you know the grief that she's suffered through losing her mother recently with mm-hmm. to about a battle with cancer and we've been able to help each other and I just you know God provided you know a strong wife for me and and um, I just I'm thankful just I look back and look at all the the pieces and the people that have uh, God has put me in contact with over the years and a lot of the tragedy that I've faced since a very young age that we won't go into today, but just a lot of the loss that I've seen and death and a lot of the things that I've had to deal with, God has, he's doing that for a reason is to be able to, I know that at least I can help other people that are going through similar experiences, you know? Mm. So then several years later, the movie Black Hawk Down came out. Mm-hmm. Did they contact your family or or anything of that nature? No, they uh, had. Um, they ended up. It was a book. Mark Bowden had written that book, and the movie was based on that book. I had read the book, Brian, and you know, no, he he contacted a few of the people I, I think that were in the unit at that when it went down, and contacted some of the rangers that were there. He didn't contact family members that I know of, unless it was. You know, some someone that I didn't know about, um, and then when the movie came out a year or two after the book, you know, it was, uh, it was. I think that they did a good job on the movie. It's not accurate, just like completely accurate. They, as my dad would say, they Hollywooded it up. You know, mm. but um, I mean, I, if anything, it brings 
it leaves a, a documentation of the price that those guys, the valor, who knows what people were reached there in Mogadishu in that country, who knows what, what they learned or what they got out of the people that were saved as a result of seeing those men's valor or even the loss that was inflicted from that battle. You know, it's, it's something that I've learned over the years uh, the hard way that God turns loss into his glory. He always turns it in good or evil, one way or the other, it's going to glorify God in the end. Mm. So when when you read the book or you watched the movie, did that kind of reignite an old flame of the well, rage and anger? Yes, it did. And honestly, I think I watched that movie once, and I took it took a long time before I was able to watch it a second time. You know, it just it, it just uncapped a lot of the emotions that it also brought out a lot of the emotions that I had kept bottled up over the years. And I still find myself doing that. Uh, I still reflect on, Hey, is this result of that tragedy? You know, as it, is it something that I've allowed to, again, is that something that the enemy can use uh, being Satan, the enemy? Is that something he can use in my life to come between me and my relationship with Christ? That's what it comes down to. So, I mean, I am I guess I'm a, a little older, uh, 28 years older now, and a little wiser where, I, you know, I'd be on guard, you know, for that type of, the, there's all kinds of tactics that the enemy will use. And to try to trip us up with our walk with Christ. You know, anything that he can use that's a weakness of ours, he will use to try to uh, interfere with our relationship with Biden, with Christ day by day. Absolutely. So uh, being a member of a Gold Star family, which I want to reiterate what you said, is, is simply an, the acknowledgement of being a family member of someone who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Yes, the it's a a direct family, um, direct next of kin is the way that the the military would define it. Uh, so it could be his a child, a brother, a sister, a parent, mm-hmm. a wife, a husband. Yeah, and and so where some people would see that as a a medal of valor to their family. Others may see that as a constant reminder of the ho- of the the horror and the tragedy, especially if they're not dealing with the anger and the rage. And- yeah, they they could, and you know, it is a reminder. It is, and I want to be reminded. We should be reminded. Everyone should be reminded of the price uh, that it cost us. It's never free. You know, we we take it, and so many of the young kids growing up now, the from. Also, I don't want to pick on any particular age group. You know, a lot of people say the millennials that the entitlement that American kids have nowadays, they, they think that it's always been like this, that that they have these entitlements that, you know, free education, free whatever nowadays. But, you know, this we're not entitled to anything. Only thing that we are entitled to is our God-given liberty. Hmm. You know, anything other than that has been bought with blood through men standing up for the Constitution. That is our rule of law. Uh, the, you know, the pursuit of happiness is guaranteed through our Constitution, uh, and the Constitution that I, I see now is such under such attack. That's that's the oath that we take when we serve the military, that we are sworn to uphold the Constitution. The re- reason being is because that is the foundation of the freedom we have under rule of law in this country. I want to be reminded, uh, and I want everyone that will listen to be reminded that that's not free. It costs a lot of men their lives, and it's cost a lot of family, their loved ones, blood throughout history of the United States. But they willingly went. They did. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier in our interview, Brian, if Donovan would have known, if someone had come say, hey, I'm sending you on this mission and you're not coming back, he wouldn't have hesitated for it. You know, maybe he did know. Who knows? Uh, maybe I know Donovan was a Christian. Uh, you know, God may have very well instilled in him an inspiration. You may not come back from this. You know, he may have known that his time was up. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know till that last moment, you know. How long, how long we're going to have on this earth, and that's why it's so important that we make every day count. Uh, and what it really is going to make the difference in eternity is that every day that we live, if we can take a moment of that day or the whole day, the more we can gl- bring glory to God, that's what's going to matter for eternity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find myself as a pastor and as a counselor— um, 
finding where there have been family conflict and we no longer talk to this member of the family. And, and I just kind of gently remind them that hey, life's too short, mm-hmm. you know, life's too short Man. to, to carry that kind of burden of, of guilt or hate or resentment, whatever it may be. And, and I'm reminded of in your story that you had to get to a point of where you realized the rage and the bitterness and resentment wasn't doing anybody any good. Right. And that it was hurting you. And so then you had to turn that into a way that, that was bringing glory and honor, not just to your family, but, but to the Lord. But a lot of yes. us don't seem to get to that point. Well, um, you know, I, maybe a, a lot of us haven't had the amount of some people have had loss. Some people have not experienced loss in their family, in their family like we have. I know as a gold star family, I don't wish that upon anybody. There's nothing that can prepare you for that. The loss that I have, I just, again, have to say that the only way that I could have endured it and the only way that I have endured it is time has passed that any grief is going to be uh, no less um, bitter. The, the grief will be no less, but you, I guess you get used to living with it. The, the important thing is that you live with it in a healthy manner. You live with it in a way that um, is not going to eat you up inside. Because again, if you have any resentment towards other people, if you have things that uh, are wrong that you feel that someone else has done you, if you allow that to take root in your life, the enemy is going to take that and he's going to turn it into a source of chain sinning in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and as I mentioned, you know, that uh, it, with me, it, it, I started, you know, uh, heavy drinking for several years and uh, I didn't get to a point where it did cause a lot of relationship problems, you know, and a, and a few brushes with the, the local law enforcement and things of that nature. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing is that even going through those times, uh, God, you know, taught me that the only way that this isn't the answer, the only answer is, is for you to rely on me moment by moment. And that means that we have to keep a lines of communication open with God. We have to, it's a two-way street. We don't sit around and, you know, call out on God in our grief only, or we call out with him on the good things that are happening in our life, the blessings that he's pouring out on us, or we just calling on him when we're down and we have nowhere else to turn. God will be there either way, you know? Absolutely. But it's important for us to keep their memory and their, their uh, sacrifice at, at heart and at hand. It is. Um, and we also need to raise our children now, you know, to appreciate what we have in this country, the patriotism, you know, uh, I try to instill that in my, I have four grandchildren now and I try to instill that in them, the patriotism, the love of our country, you know, and an appreciation for what we have that so many now take for granted and think it's just, you know, an entitlement that they're required for the government to provide for them. And uh, it's, it's not been like that until, you know, fairly recently that that uh, you look at the the individuals that like my dad, he went off to World War II when he was 15 years old. Mm. And you look at the price that just I'm a kind of a history buff and I look at the price that just the terrible conditions that they went through and oh, fighting Nazi Germany and fighting the uh, Empire of Japan. And, uh, you know, I've been to out to Pearl Harbor and you look at the the destruction that was caused there when Japan attacked us and throughout history just the amount of, of loss that we have faced that people they don't teach history like they used to you know they don't teach it in the schools they don't parents aren't just passing that down to their children and it's it's at the risk of being lost you know as the last of the great generation the world war ii veterans pass on you know my dad passed away i think three years ago now and he was 91 years old and he was 15 when he went off to world war ii and i'm not sure there can't be that many left and you know we we it's our responsibility to pass that torch on to pass to teach our children the ways uh, in which they should go, you know, also in serving God, you know. Absolutely. So if there was one thing that you could say about your brother Donovan in in his memory and his honor, what would that one thing be? One thing. Um, uh, thank you is what I would say. Thank you for, you know, always being there. Uh, there's really no way I could sum up his life in one 
thing except thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he and I, you know, we, we didn't always see the eye to eye. Uh, we fought a lot as kids, young boys growing up and, you know, but one thing about it, he was always there for me. You know, he always had my back and I always had his tried to, mm-hmm. he was just that type of guy, you know, he would be there when the chips were down, you know, Donovan was going to be there, you know? Yeah. So what would be one thing that you would say to our current state of America and, and, I think that we have gone, this is going to sound really bad, but we've gone so long without there being tremendous loss Mm -hmm. like we have had that I think we have, even as a whole, forgotten the sacrifices that have been made. One thing that I would say to our country, our state uh, that we're in, you know, we we could spend all day, Brian, talking about all the things that, that, are being done wrong right now, uh, taking God out of our education system, you know, all the different uh, moral decisions that have decayed this country for the last, especially in my lifetime, you know, since the Vietnam War. Uh, a lot of the people that were out there burning the flag and things of that nature are now in power today. Really, it comes down to all the things, the, the problems that we're having uh, socially, um, the the social justice warriors and all that going on. It really comes down to that the problem is that that we have in society is that they've taken God out of the picture and man is being left. God's a perfect gentleman. He's going to allow a country. If we keep on set, turning our back on him and saying, we don't want you in, in our government, God, we don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our family. He's a perfect gentleman. He's going to allow us to do that. And the end result of that is it's going to be an utter and total corrupt society. And that's eventually what's going to come be of the future of this country. And there's no guarantee you're going to have a country. Who knows if we're going to have a country in 20 years, but I know that all these things are coming together. You know, I've a good friend of mine that I talk to a lot, a, a fellow Christian that I've been friends with for years. We were talking the other day and I was talking about, you know, every, all of my friends that I talk to, uh, we talk about how America's falling apart. You know, it's falling apart. The country's falling apart. The world's fall, falling apart. You look at what's going on in Israel right now. And, you know, what we need to realize, though, and it helped me realize that it's not falling apart. It's falling together in God's plan. And although I'm not happy with the way things are going, I'm, it, again, I could allow that to turn to resentment and bitterness. Um, but we have to understand that God's in control. He is in control. He's in control of the past, present, and future. And there's no guarantees with us, with God. There's no guarantees that we're going to have a country because this country wasn't given to us. We fought for it. And we established that the reason he's blessed this country for all these years is because we were living under a constitution that was based on the rule of law, based on his word and his laws. That's what our country was founded on. And the farther we turned away from those fundamental truths that are found in his word, the the more we're going to see the decay of society. Absolutely. Well, Micah, I thank you for, for being able to share with us today about Donovan. And I know that his story to you is something uh, in talking to your brother's wife, uh, Duke's wife, who mm-hmm. got me in contact with you. Uh, she said he would be the best one to do it. And so uh, we're, we're thankful that, that you were willing to be here and share, an honor. To share with us. So um, any last things you'd like to say? Well, um, it's an honor. Thank you, Brian, for allowing me. Uh, you know, I never feel worthy of of uh, the the mission or the job of representing, uh, you know, Donovan. Um, I, I sure haven't paid the price that he's paid. Uh, I just want people to remember the things that we've talked about today. And when it comes down to it, it's an honor to be here. But I hope that anything, maybe it's just a statement that you and I have been able to talk about today that honor will be reflected back to Christ. That's what I hope will be the result of our discussion today. Absolutely. To Him be the glory. Amen. All right. Uh, thank you for listening today. I'm Doc Bryan. You can find me at thedocbryan.com. All of my social media links are available at the bottom of that page. And we invite you to uh, subscribe to our podcast here. We, Doc Bryan uh, and Doc Talks, is a part of the B. Frank Network. You can check out all of our podcasts there at bfrank.com. Once again, Micah, thank you for being here today. Thank you for will- your willingness to You're share. You're welcome. All right, everybody. Have a great day.